Support for Carolina Business Review is provided by Grant Thornton. Operating in more than 100 countries, our tax, audit, and advisory professionals specialize in helping companies unlock their growth potential. Blue Cross Blue Shield of South Carolina. Please visit us at SouthCarolinaBlues.com. And Sunoco, a global manufacturer of consumer and industrial packaging products and provider of packaging services with more than 300 operations in 35 countries. May you live in interesting times. Interestingly, that phrase is attributed to a Chinese curse, but can certainly be apropos to our contemporary reality for sure. This moment in America and the Carolinas is anything but boring. Legislative actions, socio-political debate, protests, anti-protests, it all seems very noisy right now in our neighborhoods, not to minimize what seems to be all worthy causes and disputes, but what gets lost because we are distracted by being oppositional? I'm Chris William, and welcome again to the most widely watched source of Carolina business and public policy. Our panel begins this week's discussion in just a moment. Major funding also by Novant Health, bringing you world-class technology, clinicians, and care when and where you need it. The Duke Endowment, a private foundation enriching communities in the Carolinas through higher education, healthcare, rural churches, and children's services. And by Blue Cross and Blue Shield of North Carolina, who's responsible for rising healthcare costs? Join us and many others in a candid discussion at letstalkcost.com. On this edition of Carolina Business Review, John Hood from the John William Pope Foundation, Peggy B. McLean, Economic Development Director for Kershaw County, and special guest Chuck Purvis, CEO of Coastal Federal Credit Union. Hello, welcome to our program. Thank you for watching and supporting the broadcast. John, welcome back. Good to see you. Thank you. Peggy, thanks for making the trip. Good to be here. Um, John, here, let me quote something back. I know you, <laughs> you probably love this. Uh, you wrote and said, um, in North Carolina, uh, Governor Cooper's decision to seek Medicaid expansion in North Carolina through executive action is a colossal blunder. Uh, you know, I love your thoughtfulness. John, what did you mean and why did you say that? Well, all governors make blunders. All new holders of any office make mistakes here and there. I thought this was a colossal blunder for, for Roy Cooper because during the month of December, there had been the special sessions. The Republican-led General Assembly in North Carolina had enacted a number of constraints, challenges to gubernatorial powers, mm -hmm. and even arguably judicial powers. And Cooper had made a lot of hay about that, about how the legislature had been encroaching on the separation of powers. He gets into office and in his first week, he proposes a gigantic encroachment of legislative power mm -hmm. by saying he had the authority to pursue Medicaid expansion with a Democratic president who was about to leave office and they were trying to sort of slip the, the note under the door, uh, hurry up and approve this. It, it just didn't go over well. It was never going to succeed, which it did not. And I just think it was a mistake from the beginning. It kind of screwed up his entire narrative. How, how would you, how would you, and it's easy for us who sit in the cheap seats to say how, you know, uh, those in public service should, should legislate. But what would you tell Governor Cooper about the relationship with the General Assembly in North Carolina? How should he approach it? Should he restart, reset, go a different tact? 
you know, he has, unlike some previous governors, he has substantial experience in the General Assembly in North Carolina, served in both houses, uh, helped create a bipartisan coalition in 1988, 89, the late 88, early 89, between 20 Democrats and the entire Republican caucus to overthrow a previous Democratic speaker. So he has experience making bipartisan coalitions. When he was attorney general for 16 years, he inter interacted mm -hmm. with the legislature. So he's, he's not a neophyte. He knows a lot of things. But I think in this case, the campaign was so uh, uh, vituperative there was so much partisan divide. He was really kind of beholden to, I would argue, a more left version of the Democratic Party than he probably historically represents, that I think he came into office combative. And it, I'm not gonna blame him because the Republicans treated him in a combative way too. But what he's gotta look at now are some opportunities to form some coalitions on some issues. I think there will be a several of them. And I think a lot of his base really wants to fight Mm -hmm. And on some matters, he needs to fight. I agree with that. I, I may not agree with his position, but I understand politically he needs to fight. But he needs to look for some opportunities to create some coalitions and talk to leaders of the Republicans and come to some accommodations on some issues. Do you get the sense he will? I think that probably is yeah. something he is naturally impelled to do. And eventually his advisors who are telling him to fight everything, he'll <laughs> tune them out and get on, get on with it. You know, it's funny. And sorry, Peggy, I haven't forgotten that you're on the program. No, that's all right. <laughs> um, we kind of get lost in, in some of the politics in North Carolina as we do in South Carolina. But, you know, it's fun, funny. People said that about uh, 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 Pat McCrory, mm -hmm. that what happened to the guy that was mayor of Charlotte? Where did that guy go when he turned into... The governor, uh, seemingly some of those attributes that he had that were very successful in a city like Charlotte were lost or that he was lis li listening to political insiders or his advisors more closely than following what had made him a success. Is that the same thing? Are we talking about the same thing? Well, the difference is that Pat McCrory was a very experienced politician in Charlotte, in city government. Uh, relevant in some ways, but not quite the same as Cooper being a former legislator himself and having lots of long-time relationships with legislators in both political parties. So I think the two situations are somewhat different. Uh, McCrory didn't have as many personal resources to fall back on. He didn't have the relationships in Raleigh that, that Roy Cooper does. Uh, Cooper was also greeted, even though it was, or McCrory was greeted by a Republican legislature, admittedly, but one that was not necessarily inclined to defer to him. Mm -hmm. So it isn't that he came into a friendly environment and Cooper's coming into a hostile environment. All governors come in to Raleigh at least in a somewhat hostile environment <laughs> because the legislature always thinks it's in charge and frankly the legislature usually does have the upper hand. And yeah. North Carolina is not uh, alone in that. South no. Carolina has a new governor McMaster. Henry yes. McMaster is mm -hmm. now coming to, a, to the job. Is, is it a sympathetic state house for him? I think it will be. Um, simply because the relationship between Governor Haley, now Ambassador Haley, um, and the legislature had its ups and downs. Um, Governor McMaster was part of the legislature, has been part of the legislature, so he has alliances, he has friends, he has people that he has crossed swords with. So I think it's going to be, um, I think he's going to have a, a, a good time you know, with the legislature simply because of the mm -hmm. past relationships, as you were talking about, the experiences. Well, Peggy, but, but Nikki Haley came into it as uh, being a former legislator as well. You know, there was a lot of talk that she was going to be Mark Sanford 2.0, and that didn't turn out. But mm -hmm. she still had um, some respect among the aisles. She did, uh, but she didn't have the tenure that uh, McMaster has, the history, um, and, you know, those long-term relationships. I'm in economic development, so relationships 
are everything. Right. You know, work with people you can trust. Um, establish something that you know you've got in common and and work toward that and so I think McMaster has a much longer history to draw upon so let's talk about that for just a second Nikki Haley arguably one of the most probably successful uh, economic development governors in a long time maybe since mm -hmm. Carol Campbell since Carol Campbell you know so um, but but this idea that uh, a lot of Governor Haley's success is not lost on those in the state that that is a big part of that is Bobby Hitt at Commerce. Yes. So what does McMaster do for an on McMaster's do for an encore here? How is he going to be accepted? I don't see it as an encore. I see it as a continuation. And that's what's so important in economic development. When you are trying to recruit industry or you've got existing industries in your community that you want to help grow, you need a relationship and you need consistency. So the fact that Bobby Hitt has stayed on as Secretary of Commerce is vital. Mm -hmm. And we are so excited about that because how McMaster, long, Peggy? How long will he stay? Well, certainly until um, till the next election. Okay. So after that, we don't know. Um, many of us are um, putting together a fund to keep him there. <laughs> he's a we, he's he's a great asset. And Governor Haley was absolutely wonderful when it came to recruiting industry. I've sit I sat in on meetings with her with prospects. She was top notch. But Bobby has been there on both sides, yeah. and so with him in place with the Department of Commerce talented staff that they have, the consistency is what's gonna keep us going right. on success. Secretary hits more like that BASF commercial. We don't make the products, we just make the products better. You know, he kind of <laughs> runs right. in the background. Uh, Governor Cooper is new, uh, not new to it, John, but certainly kind of new to the economic development game as a governor. He, he inherits something that was a complete reset that Governor McCrory put in place, the North Carolina partner, the North Carolina nonprofit partnership for economic development. Um, is he going to dismantle that? Is he going to uh, advance that? Will he enhance that? What will happen? I thought initially there might be some quick attempts to dismantle it. I'm not so sure that's really the plan anymore. North and South Carolina have had an interesting history in recent years of being uh, one of the, both of them being in, among the nation's top adders of jobs, the, growing faster than the national average, and yet not being, of course, spread out across the states, uh, having fast-growing metros, fast-growing regions, and then slow-growing regions, and the, the gaps that are, that are present there. I think that's a lot of, lot of what Cooper is going to be focused on in North Carolina is because he's from one of those places. He's from Nash County, not one of the faster-growing parts of North Carolina, the eastern part of the state. And he's kind of a return. You know, Pat McCrory was the mayor of Charlotte. Uh, mm -hmm. But uh, he is more of a smaller town. Roy Cooper's more of a smaller town Democrat. And I think that seeing those gaps and figuring out how to fill those gaps will probably be a higher priority for him than completely redoing the economic mm -hmm. development program again. I doubt it. Yeah, okay. we're, we're anxiously awaiting to see what's going to happen in North Carolina as well. Is it, wouldn't there be some low-hanging fruit? And, and if the Carolinas could stake out transportation, mm -hmm. instead of both general assemblies taking these things on separately to say, you know, South Carolina probably has, has arguably uh, a more acute issue mm -hmm. with roads and bridges. South North Carolina does as well. But wouldn't it make sense for a larger regional transport plan and infrastructure plan than trying to do this separately? Anyone? Certainly, regional plans are better than just um, isolated plans. And if and I'm sorry, and if Donald Trump has his way, there will be more money flowing from the federal government for infrastructure. So, doesn't this make sense? Certainly, um, because our our roads connect to North Carolina's roads, and so the thing that makes it very much personal 
and um, and county specific or right. state specific is funding. So looking at the overall plan, yes, we want to make sure that our system works, that our system reaches the places that need to be reached with people and goods and services. Um, but the funding, you know. Yeah. And that's an important point. The two states have some shared interests, and there mm -hmm. are some significant corridors that, that traverse the state You know, more than a boundaries. border, right? Yeah. More it's than just more a than border. That. However, they are also set up very differently when it comes to funding, funding roads in particular. I mean, North and South Carolina have quite different systems, and we need to understand that a lot of comparisons that are made between the two miss that point. Mm -hmm. North Carolina is much more of a state-funded uh, system than South Carolina is, and so the distribution of revenues is quite different. So you can, course, you can you know, plan together, you can, you plan can think system. together, yeah. mm -hmm. but you can't really fund it the same way. The two systems are would be difficult to graft. Okay, thank you. Thanks for letting us go down that road. No pun intended, a little <laughs> bit further. Uh, coming up on the program, Dr. Tim Hardy is the newly installed uh, president of the South Carolina Technical College System. He fills in where Jimmy Williamson left off, and interestingly enough, Jimmy Williamson moves north <laughs> to the old North State and uh, coming up on a program at some point. And also, uh, his name is Gene Woods. He is the new CEO at one of the largest healthcare providers in the Carolinas and the nation, also president of the American Hospital Association, Gene Woods, coming up on our program as well. Banking and finance are front and center again with seismic changes coming in federal oversight and regulation. But as interest rates rise, banks are the backbone of business and communities that we live in, uh, but they might very well be enjoying better fortunes coming up soon and stronger balance sheets just ahead. What can banks tell us about our short-term future and especially given this aging economic expansion and the very hot real estate sector. Joining us now, a recent business person of the year in North Carolina's Triangle from the Triangle Business Journal and the chief executive officer of Coastal Federal Credit Union, Chuck Purvis. Chuck, do you just hate it when you're called a bank and not Absolutely. a member organization? Absolutely. One of the most common phrases I hear out in public is, I bank at Coastal. I, I bank at a credit union. You know you when can't change that. When did become a verb? <laughs> uh, Chuck, you've heard the dialogue here. When you kind of zoom out and look at things a little bit broader, what do you think about some of these challenges that we have? And, and you self-profess say that you look at things differently. What do you see? Yeah, so let me talk about the, the, the health care conundrum we have, uh, Medicaid, Obamacare. Uh, we're a consumer lender. Uh, we have close to $4 billion in consumer loans out to our members, predominantly in the Triangle. Uh, we see more and more families in financial distress, having a hard time making loan payments, one of them loses a job and so forth, but the fast, fastest growing source of distress on families is medical debt and high deductibles. Mm -hmm. yeah. So as we see families and members get behind on loan payments and so forth, more often today than not, when we look at what's the underlying cause, uh, they're burdened with some pretty sizable medical costs. Mm -hmm. And so I think we've got we've to figure out how to do that. Uh, let me segue to tax reform if I could. There's no question the corporate tax rate's too high in this country. We're not competitive nationally. We need a pact between businesses who get lower tax rates and a willingness to pass some of that benefit to employees who work for them. And you mean an agreement, not a political action committee, right? An agreement, an agreement, actually, okay. an actual legislation in Congress okay. that says, you know, we're going to both lower corporate tax rates, but corporations are going to pass some of that through to employees. 
we need more than jobs. We need employers that are committed to their employees. One of the things we did late last year was adopt the $12.50 minimum wage at Coastal. The living wage level in the counties we operate in is over $11. Well, whoever thought a $7.25 minimum wage was going to be good for people who uh, are at that level. Mm -hmm. So I think there's, we should be exploring opportunities to uh, be more competitive on the tax front with businesses, but at the same time ensuring that part of that benefit goes to, to their employees. Mm -hmm. John? Well, tax reform is certainly one of the issues in Washington that could influence the states and influence the financial services industry, but another one is regulation. Right. The Dodd-Frank legislation, the earlier legislation, possible changes from Congress or the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. What opportunities, uh, what challenges, what threats do you see from uh, regulatory change in Washington, particularly when it comes to the relationship between credit unions and, and banks? Sure. Well, you know, Dodd-Frank, you know, we always regulate to the last crisis. Mm -hmm. And so the last financial crisis is now eight years in the rearview mirror. Uh, Dodd-Frank was a hastily created bill that tried to solve all the problems of that crisis and ensure they never uh, occur again. Some of it made sense, a lot of it didn't. Uh, and financial institutions are critical to financing economic recovery. Uh, and so I think there, there needs to be a lot of regulatory rollback. Uh, what, what frustrates us is we didn't do any of the things uh, the major banks did that caused the financial crisis. None of it, credit unions. We have to live with the same regulations that came out of that that were imposed on the banks. And it's, it's actually driving up costs. I'll give you just one example. Uh, in the mortgage lending space, uh, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau decided that nobody read mortgage documents and disclosures and went through this multi-year, we're going to make it simpler to do it, hold people accountable. And the, the net effect was it's more complicated and it drove up closing costs $400 per mortgage. So a mortgage in at least in our market, got $400 more expensive to the consumer uh, because of regulations that were put in place that weren't necessary. Did that flow to, to the agency or was that retained by the credit it's union paid, or the it's bank? Pay, it's paid by the member uh, to, in North Carolina as an attorney closing state, so attorneys close mortgage loans, so the attorneys raise their fees to account for the additional work they have to do. Yeah, okay, thank you. Peggy? You were talking about, or we were talking earlier before the program about you know, the foundation of, of your group right. with industry and with companies and everything. So what can, you know, my job as an economic developer right. is to recruit new industry, which feeds down and, and, um, and multiplies itself into the local community. So what could we be doing a better job at, you know, with regard to helping you guys? More jobs are better for us. So just a quick history. We were formed in 1967. This is our 50th anniversary year by a group of IB employees that were sent down from New York to essentially plant IBM in the Research Triangle Park. Uh, that's how we started. Mm -hmm. And uh, over time, we now have about 1,600 companies and associations, primarily in the Triangle, that have asked us to make membership available to their members. So we don't just go out in the public and say, you know, come join Coastal. 
we want em uh, employees of those companies who are working. So anything done from an economic development standpoint that helps companies add employees, uh, helps bring new companies in, ultimately gives us a bigger playing field to find members of the credit union. So under your leadership, Coastal Federal has gotten a reputation of pursuing cost savings for your, for your members right. uh, by using technology. Right. And your branches look perhaps quite different from what other right. branches <laughs> look like. Where else is that going? I mean, it, uh, what's next on the horizon for technology <clears throat> replacing some kinds of services, even in-person services that might have previously occurred at a branch? I mean, how much further can that trend <clears throat> continue? So what John's referring to is we pioneered uh, what's called video tellering uh, at Coastal with a partner. And so we were the first financial institution in the world that was able to put all their tellers in a centralized call center. And so today when you walk in one of our branches, our member is interacting with a, something that looks like an ATM, but there's, there's a teller on the screen. Uh, the benefit to our members is our, our teller services are, are available 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. seven days a week. So whoever thought banking was convenient, <laughs> 8.30 to 5.30, yeah. Monday through Friday, for people who are busy in work. Um, so that's kind of how we got known for innovation. Uh, we're now working on technology that would allow you to connect, say, with a mortgage loan officer, either from the branch or at home through video, oh. uh, at a time of your convenience, not necessarily at a time of our convenience. And then finally, we are collaborating with about 10 other credit union organizations around the country to launch a FinTech company in Raleigh that's focused on changing how we uh, build and deliver, deliver up mobile apps that our members can mm -hmm. use to do business with us. You know, I wish we could chase that down more because I'm mm -hmm. sure some of the, the, the legacy and the DNA of IBM being mm -hmm. part of it has something to do with Absolutely. it. Absolutely. We've got only about two minutes left, Chuck, and, and this is not going to be fair, but still, you, you put a stake in the ground and say one of our biggest issues in this democracy is the gap between the haves and the yep. have-nots. How, how do we even begin to get our arms around closing the gap and being fair but still having the same, same kind of democracy? So. Here's what strikes me. Uh, the top corporate tax rate's 35%. Uh, the top individual tax rate's 39.6%. Uh, most of the wealth in this country, country doesn't come through either one of those. It comes through investments and capital gains, which is taxed at 15%. So unless we're willing to change the tax code to treat human capital workers uh, the same from a tax standpoint as we treat financial capital, capital gains, mm -hmm. I think it'll get worse. There is a danger with tax reform this time around. So one of two things will happen. Either we'll be smart about it and the, the income divide will start to shrink mm -hmm. or we'll mess it up and it'll get worse. If the bulk of the benefit goes to investors uh, and the one percenters, the, the wealth and income gap will get worse. Do you, uh, apolitical, do you fear now that the gap's gonna widen, now that we have kind of an upset player in D.C.? I'm optimistic because we have an upset public. You know, the last two presidential elections, in my opinion, were both about change. Uh, and so I, I'm cautiously optimistic that we will do it smartly. 
Uh, there are a lot, a lot of smart people in Washington, a lot of smart people associated with Congress, and I, I'm hopeful we think it through and do it well. Mm -hmm. uh, we're out of time. Thank you for being on our program. Thrilled uh, to be here. Thanks for having me. Please come back so we can talk about the growth in oh, mortgage lending or real estate portfolio. I mean, those are all hot issues, but nice to see you, We'd Chuck. Congratulations to. on that Triangle Business Thank Journal. you very much. It was a nice recognition. Big honor. Yeah. Uh, Peggy, good to see you. Good luck with your, your new governor. Thank you. John, good luck with your new governor. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. If you have any uh, questions or comments or just want to make some comment about one of our comments, uh, go to carolinabusinessreview.org. Uh, watch some of our past programs. Look at some of our upcoming programs. But more importantly, uh, make a comment, a suggestion. carolinabusinessreview.org. And, and again, watch program. Thank you for watching our program. Until next week, I'm Chris William for all of us here. Uh, have a good weekend and uh, have a good business. Good night. Major funding for Carolina Business Review was provided by the Duke Endowment, a private foundation enriching communities in the Carolinas through higher education, health care, rural churches, and children's services. Blue Cross and Blue Shield of North Carolina. Who's responsible for rising health care costs? Join us and many others in a candid discussion at letstalkcost.com. Grant Thornton, operating in more than 100 countries, our tax audit and advisory professionals specialize in helping companies unlock their growth potential. Novant Health, bringing you world-class technology, clinicians, and care when and where you need it. Sunoco, a global manufacturer of consumer and industrial packaging products and provider of packaging services with more than 300 operations in 35 countries. Blue Cross Blue Shield of South Carolina. Please visit us at SouthCarolinaBlues.com. And by viewers like you. Thank you. Promotional consideration provided by Business North Carolina Magazine. For more information, visit CarolinaBusinessReview.org.